And I laid down on that mattress and I just sobbed and screamed out to God, don't take my baby, Lord. Please don't take my baby. This is all I've ever wanted. Please don't take my baby. And I just felt this peace that transcended all understanding. How could I at all in that moment feel peace except for Jesus, except for the Lord coming to me in my brokenness and my heartbreak? Welcome to the Storytellers Live podcast, where everyday women share stories of hope found in Jesus. I'm Robin, and I'm here with Lindy and Katie, and we are your podcast host. And for Mother's Day, we are bringing you really a powerful story from Jamie Johnson, who shared in our Homewood gathering about her journey through pregnancy. That's right, Robin. Jamie just talks about this difficult diagnosis of congenital hydrocephalus in her unborn son. And just what that journey looked like for her as she trusted God throughout the pregnancy, and then just how God showed up after her son was born as well. It's such a sweet story for Mother's Day, and we just we know it's going to encourage you in your faith. I'm excited for our Patreon insiders today because they are going to get to hear a story within the story where Amy Grody spends a little more time with Jamie and talks about the dynamics and insights into their family, as well as learning about prodigal pottery. Scroll down to our show notes and you can click on the link to join Patreon and become a Patreon insider, or you can simply go to our website at storytellerslive.org. Here's Jamie. Well, I'm just super honored to get this opportunity to share. When they asked, I just was really floored that you wanted to hear about everything to do with my life, but it's such a gift and an honor and This process of preparing has been, and I'm already like getting a little teary. So I thought I got all my tears out the last few days, but I don't think I was successful. I really thought back to all that we've dealt with, with my son, Oliver, which is what I'll talk about today. So reflecting on all of it has been such a gift to me just to look back at how faithful the Lord has been. And that's what I'm going to talk about. But like I said, I tried to get all my tears out the last few days and I might not have been super successful. So hang with me. But I'm just going to give you a little background on who I am. I think Whitney did a great job of that. But I grew up here in Homewood, went to Homewood High School. And many of you here know my mother, Susie Ankenbrandt, because she's famous in the Homewood community. (laughs) When I graduated from Homewood, I went to Auburn University and got an art degree there. And that's sort of what jump-started my interest in social enterprises, which is what I've sort of, from a career standpoint, committed my life to. So I started Prodigal Pottery, like Whitney said. Was there for almost a decade, and that was mostly while I was single. So my singleness, my single season, I really poured a lot of life into prodigal pottery because it was my main focus. Um, And then when I was 30 years old is when I actually got married, but my whole sort of throughout the whole time I was starting prodigal pottery and building that and growing it, my heart was just that I wanted to be married and I wanted to have a family. And so while I was really like thriving in my career and like loving what I was doing and felt so passionate about the work I was doing with the residents at the King at King's home, Really, if you were to ask anybody who knew me my whole life, um, I just wanted to be married and I wanted to have kids. It was just like the deepest cry of my heart. And um, so I definitely had a season of singleness that was tough and that I really wondered, like, are you ever going to show up in this, Lord? Like, where is my husband? (laughs) And he was so faithful to provide that. And in 2017, I started dating Stephen. He and I dated long distance. And then we had a very quick 
dating and marriage because we just knew we knew that we were the people for each other and the Lord had brought us together. And so um, we dated for four months, then got engaged, then got married four months later. So we laughed that like, did we really know each other when we got married at just eight months after um, meeting? But we also, because we were both older, we were not super young. We wanted to start our family. We were ready to jump in both feet first to have kids. That was both of our, you know, greatest desire. And so six months after uh, we got married, I got my positive pregnancy test. And the first person I called, of course, was my mother. I'm sure if any of you know me, you know that, that she would be the first person I would call with that information. And I really felt like, okay, like I've made it. This is it. This is the culmination of everything that I've ever dreamed about. Like, Lord, thank you. You've done it. (laughs) Like, I've made it. This is what I've always desired. And so it was just this like really high point in my life where I couldn't have imagined that there would be some other outcome than like, I'm going to have this beautiful baby. We're going to have this really sweet life and it's going to be perfect. And, um, that was not what happened. But I can tell you from this perspective that it has been perfect because the Lord, he orchestrated it. I'll talk about that and how we walked through our first season of pregnancy. I can say that I had, I have had terrible pregnancies. So it was not some like wonderful beginning of my pregnancy. I was like, you know, crying on the floor, like puking all the time and just like begging the Lord, like, is this really okay? It was with joy, I really do feel like there were moments of like, okay, I can push through this because this is what I've always wanted. And then we went to our 20-week anatomy scan. For any of those of you that are mothers, I think that for everybody, there's a little bit of, you know, you're definitely nervous about that 20-week anatomy scan. What's this going to say? Because they look at every single part of that baby. And we brought my mom along with us for that scan. And I remember sitting in the room with the ultrasound tech, and she was just very quiet. And I thought, gosh, she, man, she sure isn't personable. I remember thinking that. (laughs) Come on, answer our questions or show us. I would be like, oh, is that his, you know, arm or is that his leg? Is that, and she was just like nodding along. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. And we left that room. And I think I looked at my mom and said, we both were kind of like, oh, we wish she had said more. We wish she had talked more about stuff. But whatever. It's not a big deal, whatever. And in hindsight, I think she saw what she saw on that ultrasound and was silent because she didn't know how to really proceed through it without maybe breaking down. I'm not sure because what she saw was life altering for us. And our doctor came in and and went through, you know, everything looks good here. Everything looks good there. But there's something about his brain that we are not super sure about. So we're going to send you to maternal fetal medicine at UAB and they're going to be able to give you a better picture. So in that moment, we definitely felt very nervous, wondering, what does this mean? You know, can you give us a little more detail? And she was very wary. She didn't give us more detail. We really didn't know very much at all. And so I think we left with, well, maybe it's no big deal. Like it could be nothing. We could get to this maternal fetal medicine appointment and it could be no big deal. It could be that they saw something wrong on the ultrasound. We just didn't have any idea what that would hold. And so we waited a pretty excruciating 10 days between that 20-week ultrasound and going into maternal fetal medicine. It was some tough waiting of like, okay, what's the end result going to be? And so we went to UAB on March 29th, 2019. 
which is a date we will never forget because it's the day that changed our lives forever. And I remember going to the 10th floor. And for any of you who have ever had complicated pregnancies, you don't want to go to the 10th floor at UAB. <laughs> it's like the dreaded maternity floor. But it has become our maternity floor for every pregnancy from here on out. <clears throat> Just because of our situation, that's where we go. And it became always, you know, we went so many times after this appointment that that 10th floor is like, ugh, I don't like going to the 10th floor. Went into the ultrasound room, and I'll never forget that it is like a massive ultrasound room at UAB. If you've ever been in that maternal fetal medicine ultrasound room, it's huge. And I remember thinking, why is this room so big? And I think it's because sometimes they bring a whole lot of doctors and specialists and lots of people into the room. But for us, the first person that came in was a fellow who said, okay, I'm just going to start off. I'm going to do the ultrasound, and then we'll have the doctor come in. But I'm going to give you a little detail. Like, what do you know so far? And we were like, what do you mean? What do we What do we know? We don't know anything. We know that there's something potentially with his brain, but we really don't know anything more than that. And I just remember her face just dropping. And this moment of realization where she was like, I'm the one that's about to have to give you the worst news that you're ever going to hear. And that news was that Oliver, who at that point we knew he was a boy and we knew his name was Oliver, and Oliver had congenital hydrocephalus and it was extremely severe and that was the first time I'd ever heard the word hydrocephalus I think I maybe you know and random here and there I might have heard that word but I was like what what does that mean what is hydrocephalus and she said hydrocephalus is fluid on the brain and it Basically, in his case, because it's so early, it's only 21 weeks in your pregnancy, the fact that it's showing up this severe is a really big deal and it's life altering for him. And so we said, what, I mean, what does this mean? What does this mean? And I remember the doctor coming in and just confirming, like, this is a very severe case of hydrocephalus. So it's hydrocephalus is not super uncommon in babies. One in 500 babies are born with hydrocephalus, but not the severity of Oliver's. So most children, if they are diagnosed with hydrocephalus in utero, it's much later in the pregnancy, 32, 36, 38 weeks. And a lot of time is a result of a brain bleed, something like that, that happens in utero. So Oliver's was extremely severe because of how early it was. And the problem with it being so early was that he had that fluid building in his brain every single day and so for the rest of the 20 weeks of my pregnancy it was just going to continue to build and build and build and press his brain against his skull and compress it and and cause just brain damage that we didn't know what that would look like and so the doctor said to us you know what this means is if this is genetic we'll know that there's a deeper reason for the hydrocephalus happening and we could go ahead and tell you that it's probably a 0% chance that he'll survive after birth. If it's not genetic, that's a different situation. We'll have to get there when we get there because we just can't know. And so we left that day and, I mean, our lives had changed forever. We're going to lose our child. That's what we left with. We're, you know, chances are very likely that we're going to lose our child. And um, as you can imagine... We were just overcome with grief and not understanding um, what the future held was crippling. It was really crippling. We just had no idea what was next for us and what was next for Oliver. And we were going to have to wait 10 days to find out the genetic test results to know, is there any situation where he might survive? And if he does survive, 
what will that look like for us? Or what will that look like for him? And so those 10 days were honestly the most excruciating days of my life. And I would say for the people closest to us, excruciating days for all of them as well. And in that mo- in that time, I decided I've got to figure out some way to process this. Like this is so much for me. I can't even comprehend <laughs> any of what's happening, but I'd always loved writing. And so I decided I feel like the way to really process this best is through a blog because it would be an opportunity for other people who were following our story, who were praying for us to get a glimpse into what was happening, to be updated. But it was also just like this cathartic way for me to put on paper what, or put on a computer, what God was doing, how we were navigating it. And so I want to read a few excerpts from my blog because I feel like I went back and read all of them this week because I was preparing and I feel like they just really hit with what we were feeling in that time. And so this was April 4th, 2019, which was just five days after we got his diagnosis. This is a It starts with a verse from Psalm 89, 8 to 9. It says, O Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty as you are? O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you, you rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. And this is what uh, I blogged. The Lord keeps placing this very real image in my mind of us swept out to sea. Waves raging all around us, barely able to hold our heads up in the wake. The water is crashing down, filling our lungs, stinging our eyes, and muffling all of our cries for help. And just when we feel like the weight of the water will drag us deep into the black, icy depths, a new set of waves come. They roll our aching and tired and weary bodies onto the shore, and there we lay. We're still soaking wet, and we're coughing up acrid salt water out of our lungs, but we are safe. We feel the sun shining down on our waterlogged skin and feel the gentle rustling of a breeze start to dry us. The Lord has given us rest. He has given us rest on the shore. Rest enough to carry us through the next set of waves that will pull our weary bodies back out into the heartbreak and the pain. He does not promise that we will not feel pain. Quite the opposite. He promises that we most certainly will. But he also promises to never leave us in it. He promises to sweep us back out onto the shore, to breathe life and light back into our lungs and pour peace and hope over our souls. And so that was just a glimpse, one glimpse at where I feel like we were was just this, like we were drowning every day, but the Lord was so present and he kept giving us moments where we could get our heads above the waves, above the water and see his goodness. I remember um, though that, you know, there was this one moment, it was actually the day after we got the diagnosis. I woke up really early in the morning and I was just overcome with brokenheartedness. And I went into his bedroom, which I had just painted. So it just like still smelled like paint. We had taken all the blinds off the windows and we had taken everything out of the room. So the only thing in the room was this bare mattress, twin mattress on the floor. And I laid down on that mattress and I just sobbed and screamed out to God, like, don't take my baby, Lord. Please don't take my baby. This is all I've ever wanted. Please don't take my baby. And I just felt this peace that transcended all understanding. How could I at all in that moment feel peace except for Jesus, except for the Lord 
coming to me in my brokenness and my heartbreak. So fast forward through those 10 excruciating days and we get a call from the nurse and she says, well, guys, it's good news. The genetic tests were negative. And obviously we were overcome with like, wow, okay, they're negative, they're negative. But we still were left with like, what does that mean? What does that mean for us? We had gotten to a point where we were praying and we were saying, we believe that you will heal Oliver, Lord. We know you will heal Oliver. And it will either be that you will heal him here, earthside, or you will heal him completely because he will go and be home with you in eternity. And we kind of thought, like, if we knew the genetic tests were positive, we would know definitively what was going to happen. You know, he would not live here on earth with us, but he would be safely in the arms of Jesus. And there was a little bit of comfort in knowing what, what the future held, honestly, which sounds crazy. But I just think we were in so much unknown at that point. We just thought anything would be comforting to know what the future looked like. And instead, it thrust us into another season of just waiting, of waiting and wondering and praying and begging and saying, what does the future look like? The chances were he could be vegetative. His brain damage could be so bad that he would be born. And we would have to make really hard decisions of do we, you know, provide life support if it's just going to extend the inevitable? Do we you know, provide things like a trach if he can't breathe on his own, do we, you know, feeding, all of those things. And so that was a whole other excruciating piece that we just were really struggling to comprehend. How, you know, what will the future look like? And so God put us in this season of waiting, of waiting and wondering, don't you feel like that's life though? I mean, I feel like that's just life, especially when you have children. Like we don't know what the future holds for any of our children, Um, whether they have disabilities, whether they have medical complications or not. And so in that time, the Lord really taught us to like hold our children at that current time, which was Oliver. And now we have a second Emmy open-handed because they're not ours and we don't know what the future holds for them. And that was one of the huge things that he taught us. But I also really struggled in that season with feeling shame for my groaning so to speak. You've already done so much, Lord. The test result was negative. Look at what you've done. But here I am groaning and sobbing and dealing with so much heartbreak. Am I being like faithful to know that you are good? And I feel like the Lord really, that was another huge thing that he um, taught me in that season was that like, just like David, just like Job, they were not disobedient to the Lord in their groaning, in their heartbreak, in their crying out to him and saying, why God, why? And he was faithful to walk alongside them in their heartbreak. And so this is one more blog post that I just want to read from May 3rd. So it would have been several months since we got his diagnosis and several more until he would be born. And it was just that middle season where we still had to wait so long for him to come. So we still didn't have answers. We knew that the chances of him not making it were much smaller. We knew he would make it, but what did that mean? This is from May 3rd. It says, the Lord doesn't just want our silent obedience. He wants us to come to him with our groaning, 
with our hurts, with our angst and our brokenness. It's easier to ignore my pain than believe the truth that I serve a God who has already taken on that pain, has already defeated it, and wants us to lay it all before him. Every sickening thought, every bitter tear, every groan of frustration and unfairness. Our frustration with our pain does not scare God nor make us disobedient. I oftentimes think I'm not allowed to scream out to him, why us? Why Oliver? Why is this the path that you have us on, Lord? I feel ashamed to scream that out, but our God is not a God of shame, and he does not look at my pain as being untrusting of his goodness. My groaning and my heartache and my truthful cries of angst do not negate his sovereignty. I have to remind myself all the time that Jesus did not come for the well, but for the sick. And I'm sick with suffering so many days, but he's with me in all of it. My groaning does not negate my trust in the Lord or negate that his plans are perfect. My hurt should never be a source of shame, but a catalyst to lead me to the feet of Jesus. And that's truly what I felt in that season. And I think back to it now and I think, I miss that closeness with the Lord. (laughs) You know, like we're in this daily grind, as so many of you who are moms understand, of like diaper changes and going to school and, you know, food and feeding on bath time and all of the things. But I forget that closeness I had with the Lord, even though it was my season of deepest suffering. He was so near to us. It was a palpable presence that I will never, ever forget And he was so good to us in that season when you'd think like, this is the season where how could you trust that God is faithful in this? We did. We we knew because he was proving it to us every day. And so the months went on and we got word, okay, guys, it's time to have this baby. It was 38 weeks. His head had grown to 50 centimeters, which a typical newborn has a 21 centimeter, 20, 19, 20, 21 centimeter head. So it's more than double the size of a newborn head, almost the point of adult size head. And the fluid had been building. And so we had been waiting and waiting for the day that he would be born so that we could place a shunt, which is what is placed for children or any person with hydrocephalus to drain that excess fluid and get the pressure off the brain. And, um, So we went in on July 24th, 2019 and had that baby boy with so much fear and so much wondering, what is this going to look like? You know, when he's born, what is it going to look like? And I'll never forget the moment. It was a brutal delivery C-section because he had such a big head that it took a lot of work to get that boy out. When they did, and I heard that first scream, I thought, okay. He has breath in his lungs, breath that we never knew he might have. He has breath in his lungs. And they walked him over to me and he was super pink. He was the pinkest baby, which made us like, yes, you got all that oxygen, all your limbs and all your everything. And um, I held his little hand and saw his big old head, but it was the cutest big old head you've ever seen. It was so cute. And, um... They wheeled him out and never forget that Stephen, my husband, took a pic, uh, took a video of him right when they'd wheeled him out. And one of the things we worried about was like sucking. Would he be able to like suck? Would that be something like from, from a feeding perspective, what would that look like? And they put this big old passy in his mouth and he was just sucking so hard. Those little cheeks were going in and out and in and out. And it was this moment like, okay, Lord, like he is here. 
and he is alive and like you have great plans for his life and he has he has had remarkable plans for Oliver's life so we you know I won't go into all of the details of what those days held but it was a heck of a lot of doctors coming in and out of the NICU we were there for 16 days he had brain surgery at 24 hours old to place his shunt um, since then he's almost he'll be four in July and since then he's had three brain surgeries and two additional surgeries such a little champ I mean the kid had five surgeries before the age of two what I can say to you is that the years have flown by even with hundreds and hundreds of therapy appointments and doctor's visits and specialists and lots of fear and lots of doubt and lots of concern over what the future held for Oliver but the reality is he's a normal little boy. He has got disabilities for sure. He is, you know, has cerebral palsy as a result of his brain damage. He uses a walker and we're working real hard on getting him walking. But things like talking, you know, we never knew. Would he ever talk? The kid talks up his storm these days, which is such a gift. And he sings all his songs and he cracks us up on a daily basis. He is just a gift and a joy. And those were all things we never knew. Would, ev- would he ever do these things? And he has blown every expectation out of the water and then some. You know, I remember very, very distinctly being in that um, office at MFM in that ultrasound room and saying to our doctor, what, I know that we live in Alabama, so termination is not an option here. And I'm glad it's not because that's never would be an option for us. But would that, like, would people in other states, would that be what they would do in this situation? And he looked at me and said, two thirds of hydrocephalus babies that have the same diagnosis as Oliver are terminated and never would see age four like Oliver, where he is thriving in every way possible like truly in every way and life is not easy and we face a lot of challenges because of you know the disabilities that he faces and we still wonder what is the future going to hold for him I know you know God has been so faithful in all of it and in closing what I really want to say is what we learned so much through this process with Oliver is what if that weren't our outcome I think about that. What if he wasn't about to turn four years old and was the hilarious light of our lives who cracks us up every day, singing all his various songs and drives us crazy with how stubborn he is, not wanting to use his walker and, you know, all the things that all the light he has brought to our life. What if he had not survived? What if he was in eternity with the Lord? And what I want to say to that is, What God taught us is that he is still faithful. His faithfulness is not dependent on our circumstances. And I really feel like that is what he taught me through this season with Oliver, through all of the heartbreak and the trial, is that like if he had chosen for Oliver that he needed to take him home to eternity, he still would have been good in that. He is still faithful and that our circumstances with our children, our circumstances with our families, our circumstances personally, like they don't dictate God's faithfulness. He's faithful because of his character. 
And he's faithful because of the cross. And we can trust his faithfulness because of the cross. And it makes me think of Paul in Ephesians chapter 4 when he says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. And so that's the hope that we have in Jesus. And that's the hope we have for Oliver is that we are alive through Christ because of the cross. So whether our situation would have been this amazing, miraculous gift that we have of his life or the opposite, like God has still been faithful in it all. And I know because of what we've endured with him, because of what we've walked, because of knowing God's character as a result of it, that he will continue to be faithful for all of the days of our life. And so I guess that's my encouragement to you today is I think that you know, there are people in here who may have lost children who that might, your end result may not have been that your child had a miraculous healing situation or your family member had a miraculous healing situation or any of those things. And I think that in those moments we have, we think, how are you good in this God? How are you faithful in this? But he's faithful because of the cross. He's faithful because of his character. And that's really what I, you know, wanted to share of like how he showed us that so dramatically through our journey with Oliver. Thank you. The end of Jamie's story was so profound. And I think that it's a great place to start for Mm -hmm. our discussion where she says, God's faithfulness is not dependent on our circumstances. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we've talked about this being a Mother's Day episode, and I think we need to recognize the fact that there are some of you listening that want to be a mother that are not yet. Mm -hmm. There are some of you listening that haven't gotten the diagnosis you hoped for, that have lost a child or that have experienced a lot of heartache. And so Mother's Day can be hard. And so what an encouragement and great reminder that God's faithfulness is not dependent Mm -hmm. on our circumstances, that he meets all of us exactly where we are, no matter the diagnosis, no matter the circumstances that we're in. One thing also, Robin, that spoke to me was just when Jamie spoke about looking back over her story and seeing the times where God met her. I loved that she journaled throughout this. Mm -hmm. I want to be a journaler so bad and I'm not good at it. You're a writer. I know. Isn't that crazy? And I just, I don't journal that well. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I do think it is so good for our spiritual journey to journal and to be able to look back on Mm -hmm. those times where God met us. I thought her journal entries were so beautifully written. They were. Um, Wow. Just, you know, the concept of God holding her head above the water of those waves. And that's his faithfulness as well, that no matter what you're walking through, like you said, Robin, if if you didn't get the diagnosis answer that you wanted like she did, God's going to hold your head above the waters in that as well. Well, the imagery that you yes, get there yeah. as far as the, the words, the him holding you above the water in the current and mm-hmm. then the groaning. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we've talked about this before. God is a God. He can be trusted and he wants us to groan to yes. him. Yes. yes. I mean, complaining and venting, that's, those are no, uh, another word, but groaning, you can feel the emotion in that word because he is faithful. He is faithful because of his character. Mm-hmm. And we can bring our groans to him. We don't have to feel shame from that. Mm-hmm. You know, and she said something that really resonated with me about God answering the prayer of the genetic test. Mm-hmm. And so when they got that answer, 
cancer, she felt this guilt and shame for continuing to ask for healing. And, you know, we've had other storytellers reference that in the past as well, that if you get one answered prayer, one healing miracle, then you feel like your time's up. You've gotten all the answers you can possibly get. And that's not how God works. He's a God of abundance. He is abundance. I say all the time, there's enough pie in the kingdom for everybody. (laughs) You don't just get your one little piece and you're done. He gives and gives and gives. And, you know, the beautiful thing is he reminds us of that in Romans eight twenty six because he tells us that the Holy Spirit groans alongside of us. It says, you know, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. We don't know what to pray for, but the Spirit intercedes for us through wordless groans. And so we shouldn't feel shame over those moments where we are on our knees and begging God to intercede in areas. He longs for us to do that. It's not even about the answer that he gives us through those groans. It's really about the connection that we make with him through those groans as well. Yeah. She mentioned that he doesn't just want our silent obedience. He wants our pain and our hurts. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we just want to say happy Mother's Day to all of you who are mothers out there. You're doing a really good job, and God's got this, <laughs> yes. and He's got your children. We want you to to rest in that truth. And then if you are praying to become a mother, we join you in that mm-hmm. prayer. But to everyone out there, happy Mother's Day. Yes, and thank you again for listening. We look forward to being with you next week with a great story from Hope Aldred. And so don't miss out on next week's story, and we will talk to you later. Bye. Bye.